You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined again by Greg Banner, a retired Special Forces officer, who's going to talk to us today about a war that many of us have forgotten. Greg, welcome back. Thank you very much. Great to be here again. We're going to talk today about your experiences in El Salvador. Can you frame that in a larger context of American operations in Central America in the 1980s? I will. So... We had Vietnam, and after the Vietnam War, there was a huge push politically and socially that, you know, never to do that again, not get involved in anything. But basically at the time, the challenge to the United States interests was mostly focused in Central America. Uh, of course, Cuba, Fidel Castro had happened in the late 50s, and then Cuba had continued to be a thorn in our side, uh, instigating uh, causing problems throughout Central America, Latin America, uh, some things that happened in Venezuela. Che Guevara got hunted down and, and killed and a lot of things going on. So Central America was a, was a very big focus. And then in the late 70s, uh, had, there'd been a revolution in Nicaragua, which we, I'll say, sort of supported. Uh, we didn't send any troops. We sent some supplies. But in the end, they got, uh, the government got overthrown by a communist insurgency. And so there was then a communist government also in Nicaragua, in addition to Cuba. And so there was this threat of a rolling tide, the dominoes, and we were worried about it. And so it became the focus for U.S. efforts. And we decided that we weren't going to allow those kind of things to happen anymore and, and started to pump more and more support into all over Central and Latin America uh, to try to support friendly governments against communist insurgencies. At the time, you were a young or a senior captain, a young major in the Special Forces. What group were you assigned to, and how did you wind up going to El Salvador? Uh, I had been in 5th Group, which is oriented towards the Middle East, and then I had done a tour as a team leader in 7th Group, which is oriented towards Central America. And I had done some of those missions into Latin America where we were training and helping out the, the local governments. The uh, insurgency in El Salvador started in the early 80s, and we activated a military group the U.S. Mill Group El Salvador, to support the Salvadoran Armed Forces uh, with actual on-the-ground trainers. Very limited size, which was kept that way for U.S. political reasons. 
uh, and then a lot of support. Uh, I was actually in a uh, secondary assignment as a civil affairs officer in Germany uh, when the Gulf War started, the first Gulf War started, and they had a shortfall for El Salvador. So Branch kind of scrambled to reach out. I had actually taken command and staff college by correspondence. I had already knocked it out during my multiple TDY trips. I was a promotable captain, and I had the Spanish and Latin American background, and there were very, very few of those around. So they reached out, asked me if I could cut short in Germany and go take one of the mill group assignments as one of the district team leaders. So I uh, went through Bragg, went through some language brunch, brush up in Guatemala, and then went on to El Salvador. What was your understanding of your mission, and what was Mill Group's mission down there? The Mill Group supported uh, principally the military districts in El Salvador. There were, I believe, seven districts plus a uh, training center, and we had teams at each of those that were advisory teams. And we also had headquarters, a headquarters cadre that mirrored the general staff of the Salvadoran Armed Forces and were advisors to them. So my mission was I was a team leader, district team leader for the three western districts in El Salvador. We had three brigades there with three colonels, 06s, Salvadoran colonels, uh, and that was my district. It was myself and one Special Forces NCO, and we had that whole district. Uh, the actual mission uh, was pretty vague because it very much depended on the location. It depended on the counterparts. It depended on uh, that part of the country because of the the enemy threat, the guerrilla threat varied in different parts. So we, we somewhat were left on our own to formulate our own mission. Uh, we did training. We reached out and found things that needed to be done. We did advising, but a lot of it was looking around, seeing how we could be useful and trying to help out. At this point, El Salvador's insurgency has been going on for approximately a decade. How experienced were your Salvadoran counterparts? The, uh, the, the Salvadoran army had evolved during the war. People that had done multiple advisory tours described that transition where they started out very much a garrison army, not going out of the quartel, the bases that they were in, but they, they figured it out and they got moved out to the field. So when I got there in my district, most of the forces stayed out patrolling. They were very active. They had, to, they had to guard fixed points. That was part of the mission. But the rest of the forces were out there trying to hunt down the bad guys and patrol roads uh, during the coffee uh, harvest season. They, they protected the harvest. That was one of the big annual cycles that happened in the country. But they were pretty good. The junior officers grew up with the war. And they were, they were all experienced. They had been fighting. They had been wounded multiple times. Uh, they had the typical limitations of that kind of a country where you basically had very young recruits. They would do one tour and then they would be gone. So you had an officer cadre. You had really no NCOs to speak of. There were more troops who they could give more responsibility to, but no real career NCOs to speak of. So very a primitive structure, but in its own way, somewhat aggressive. And they had they had special units too. They had each of the brigades where I was had a special forces company that had some of the older people in it. And they would do more aggressive patrolling and operations. And then at national level, there were battalions that were kind of oriented that way too. So I think they, the, the, the army had evolved and it, it had gotten better throughout the course of the war. And some for some reasons, you know, because of us, but also just because they, they got better at war fighting because they were in it the whole time. How big was the district you operated in? 
The three Western departments of El Salvador, uh, boy, now so much later, I would guess, let's say 70, 80 miles north to south and maybe 60 miles east to west. What was the terrain like that you and your El Salvadoran counterparts were operating in? It was typical in that part of the world where you had a, we were on the coast, so our, our southern departments both had beaches. Uh, they had uh, ports and and that kind of activity, economic. Uh, you get more into the mountainous terrain as you come inland and big coffee plantations, uh, some pretty steep mountains, some old volcanoes, none of them active in my area. Uh, so you had, you, you know, you had a, a little bit of everything. Uh, no real jungle. It wasn't that kind of an environment, but it was thickly vegetated. Yeah. So, I mean, plenty of places for gorillas to hide, mostly rural, but also with big cities. Like my, where I lived was in Santa Ana, which was the second largest city in El Salvador. So a pretty good sized city with, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of development and pretty tight in. You mentioned the special forces NCO. Were you the only two Americans in the district? We were the only two permanent Americans. Some of the other agencies, uh, USAID, CIA, I think those are the two that come to mind, had, had roadshow people. They, they would come out of the embassy, come out of the capital and spend time in the region doing things, some things in their area. But yeah, the, the only, we were the only two Americans that stayed there, uh, certainly on the army base. And you mentioned the embassy. I'm assuming that's where the mill group was headquartered. Correct. What was your relationship with them like, frequency of contact? You know, were you young Major Banner out alone and unafraid? Or was this, you know, daily sit reps back to San Salvador? Uh, yeah, certainly the mill group was based at the embassy in San Salvador. We had a monthly meeting of the mill group. So all of the advisors would, uh, or most of us would, would come in for a, a long weekend typically and kind of get the latest updates and guidance and give briefings on what was going on in our, in our areas in particular. Communications, yeah, you know, thinking back to the, this was uh, early 1990s and, and things were fairly primitive, uh, in terms of communications. We had handheld, unsecure, uh, radios that sometimes hit repeaters. A lot of times traveling throughout the region, we couldn't communicate, so you, you lost commo. Uh, we had a phone in our billets, but it, we had no direct line, so you had to go through operators, which is sometimes a, a tedious process. And we had a, I forget what it was called, but we had a an encryption device where we could type up messages and encrypt them and hook them up to the telephone to get them to somebody if we needed to. But that was a very long process. Um, the Milgrew people did travel. They're, the advisory team had a lieutenant colonel who was our, our lead person, and he would do a, a road tour, pretty much stay on the road visiting the different regions. So sometime we would see him every couple of months maybe. Other than that, though, it, it commo was scarce. Uh, basically, we had our guidance, and it was mostly up to us to determine what we were going to do, where we were going to do it, and how we were going to do it. As you were developing those plans, how influential were the personalities in the Salvadoran military in that process for you? The brigade commanders were absolutely masters of their their universe, and so a lot of the relationships. And the ability of the advisors to do things was a direct result of the of the commander where they were. Uh, my commander uh, was a total politician. He really didn't dabble in military stuff, but sometimes a lot of the the units couldn't do stuff without his permission. 
So there was sometimes a log jam. I think they, they maintained routine matters, but if it was anything outside of the routine that had to go to him for approval, sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't, but it was a long process. So that, that was, I think, typical of the advisor challenge. Other zones had wonderful Salvadoran colonels who were aggressive, were fighters, were warriors, and the advisors there had a lot easier time and their, their advice was accepted. The, the colonel where I was uh, had, had pretty much run off the previous advisor. Um, they, they had a pretty bad relationship. I mostly didn't connect with my colonel at all. I didn't spend any time with it. I dealt with the XO and the S3 and tried to work through them and be as useful as I could. You mentioned the Salvadoran army would stay out in the bush. When they were in the bush, what was their field discipline like, their craft? What was your role uh, in that process, if any at all? Um, the, the rules for us were somewhat complex, uh, in other ways somewhat fairly straightforward, where we were not allowed to deliberately engage in combat operations. So we had to be selective in where we could go and when we could go. Um, we did go out on patrols if there was like less than a 50% chance of contact. If it was a, a deliberate mission with a deliberate target, we couldn't go. But if they were just out wandering around. We could follow them around and go with them. And we did, we did that kind of a thing. They, again, it's if you envision the type of force, they had limited communications. They didn't have nearly as many officers as they needed. So, for example, you'd have a battalion commander who was a captain. Very seasoned, the oldest but captain, you know, in the in the unit probably. Uh, he'd been fighting his whole career, but nevertheless, you had a captain. You maybe had a lieutenant as each of the company commanders, and then you had a whole bunch of troops. So you had this typically a group, a battalion-sized group that couldn't get much smaller than that because you didn't have the command and control and the leadership. So they would they would do things typically as battalions. They would go into sectors. And, and patrol around, either doing road patrols or uh, out in the woods in certain areas. They would just decide to, to mostly get the battalions on, or the companies online and sweep through areas trying to find guerrillas and things like that. Uh, and then again, they were, they were guarding a lot of fixed points too, which was another source of conflict with the guerrillas. They would often get attacked in those fixed sites, and that would be another part of the war that was going on. You mentioned the lack of communications equipment. When an El Salvadoran soldier went to the field, what was he carrying? Uh, all U.S. surplus <laughs> equipment, uh, some in better shape than others, M16s, M60 machine guns, ponchos, but pretty light compared to you know what we think of. Very little water and food, so they would need a lot of resupplies. They had a lot of trucks, and that would be a, some of the convoying that would sometimes get attacked by the enemy. But So they were good for maybe a day or two, and then they would get resupplied from the bases and get their supplies, or they could scrounge locally sometimes. Uh, but yeah, the, all the basic gear like we have, but again, in 1990s, 1980s gear, uh, or Vietnam surplus gear, so basic load-bearing equipment, but not, not a whole lot, nothing fancy. The previous advisor had been run off. Did you get guidance from Mill Group in San Salvador about the relationship, how to repair it, or was it, Greg, there's your district, good luck? Wow, I think, uh, yeah, mostly the latter. <laughs> I, I knew the story. I knew there were problems. Uh, I don't think I knew. I didn't get to talk to him because he was gone from country when I got there. And I was told, though, 
that it was typical, that it happened. It wasn't just the advisor, you know, it was the, the nature of the Salvadoran colonel and, and their their system of promotion and their connection to their political system and, and what colonels and commanders thought of their place in the world, which was very linked to the political system there. So no, I didn't get a whole lot uh, other than the basics. And then it was, yeah, go out there and do the best you can is kind of it. What was the relationship like between you and your enlisted counterpart? Uh, my uh, The Special Forces NCO who was with me, I had two of them that rotated, uh, one and then the other. Um, good, you know, basic, hardworking SF NCOs. The second one, I think, was a lot more successful. He was a native speaker, Texan, uh, and very animated, very aggressive in the way of, of wanting to do things, wanting to be out there, training soldiers, running courses. Um, so, yeah, we, it was good. You know, we were the only Americans there. And, uh, yeah, yeah, just getting on with the business. We tried to find things between us to be to be useful and to do with the Salvadorans. You stated earlier that the guidance was if there was a greater than 50 percent chance of contact, you weren't allowed to go. But if there was less than a 50 percent chance chance of conflict, you could. Did you wind up running into some of those less than 50 percent chances that resulted in contact? Yeah, it wasn't. I, I use that phraseology, but it wasn't spelled out that way. I'm just trying to relay the idea of, you know, if, if you think something's going to happen, don't go there was kind of the guidance. But if it happens and you're in it, well, then that's that's the way things happen. And you got to be out there doing your job. So it was, um, I think mostly what people experienced while I was there was things like bombings, uh, stray mortar rounds, things like that. Occasionally attacks. There were, before my time, there were great offensives in the Salvadoran War, and there were the bases, cortels that were attacked. Um, one advisor, specifically Greg Fronius, was killed in one of the attacks by a mortar round. Uh, there were assassinations that happened mostly around San Salvador, where and sometimes people were, were a little bit careless and were caught like in outdoor cafes. And um, I think there was a bunch of the people from the Marine House got killed at one point. Um, so those kind of things happened. But yeah, there were, uh, in my zone actually, though, it was one of the less conflicted zones. Um, we kind of, the way we judged it was by like friendly killed in action a month. And my zone had maybe five to 10 a month. Uh, there were some zones that were definitely uh, full on wartime and the advisors could never leave the compound. But in my zone, I, I had free access. I could go pretty much any place I want. So we spent a lot of time traveling around. And um, there's one incident in particular where I, I, I came on late to a an ambush had already happened of an army unit, and I came upon it, and we thought it was all over, and it wasn't. And so it kind of flared back up again, and, and I was there during that. Let's talk about that ambush a little bit further. In the war in El Salvador, how did the guerrillas initiate ambushes against the Salvadoran army? There were a lot of uh, improvised explosives that they that they made. They handmade out of uh, metals, you know, nails and things like that. Uh, and then they had access to explosives or got them out of artillery shells and things like that. Uh, they made an, there was one improvised mortar, uh, I'll call it a mortar, but it was enormous. They actually would launch a, like a uh, natural gas tank out of a, out of a pipe, out of the back of trucks. And that'd be like a size of an eight inch artillery shell. And they would lob those into uh, bases. Um, didn't happen to my base while I was there, but they would do that kind of thing. Actual road ambushes, uh, because in my zone, they didn't operate in huge numbers. They would tend to be standoff ambushes where they would mostly, uh, set off improvised explosives, try to cripple vehicles and then shoot up the convoys. 
Uh, and that was basically the one that happened that I ran into. You mentioned that you came across the ambush a little late. Was it common for you to drive separately or were you out and about and happened to run into this unit? We would, we would never drive with military units because they were identifiable. We had civilian SUVs is what we drove around. And we would always try to be separate because we didn't want to get caught up, you know, in, deliberately with anything uh, they had going on. We didn't necessarily need the protection to travel that way. So um, this, uh, this was a convoy of maybe four or five trucks, deuce and halves. I'm not sure. They weren't full of troops, but they had troops in them. So I don't know if they were doing a supply run or not. But basically, they'd been going down the road. And I think they they were from the wrong direction that the guerrillas thought they wanted to ambush because the uh, the IEDs were on the opposite side of the road. They were on if – if you picture the trucks driving to 12 o'clock – um, the ambush came from their left side and then they set off, uh, some mines, some improvised mines. They blew out some tires. They, they peppered the trucks with some shrapnel. Uh, and then they opened up with small arms, machine guns and stuff from about maybe a hundred yards away. They were up on a hillside overlooking the site. Uh, and so when I, I, we sort of heard it ahead of us, knew something had happened, stopped, waited a while, heard firing, kind of died down. We waited a little longer and then decided, okay, that we knew what happened. Let's go see what's going on and see if, you know, if we can help, if we could do help with medical care or something like that. So we, we then came up to the site, uh, basically saw what we expected was the vehicles had gotten stopped. I think a couple of tires had gotten blown. Uh, the troops were out of the vehicles kind of looking around. They were starting, though, to get up already, um, thinking it was all over. And so we parked a little ways behind them. Uh, and then walked up, got out of the vehicle. I had, we always traveled with, uh, we had a, they call him a bodyguard, but myself and my NCO, we each had a Salvadoran sergeant, uh, who would just have a two man rule. They would always travel with us. So I would drive, but he would be in the vehicle with me. So both of us got out of the vehicle, kind of walked up to the ambush site, just wanted to see it and see what was going on, make sh- you know, see what was going on with injuries. And then the gorillas opened up again. You know, I guess they saw folks up milling around and nobody had gone after them deliberately. Um, So they came back over the ridge and started firing again. For the guerrillas not to have been chased away, was that standard for the Salvadorans or was this just an anomaly with this convoy? You know, I I didn't have a lot of experience with their counter ambush techniques. I, I think maybe because of the space involved, you know, it wasn't a near ambush. It wasn't like right on top of them, and there was a bit of space, and it was mostly open. So I think they were they were happy with firing back and having what looked like the guerrillas fade away. Uh, if it had continued deliberately that way, then maybe they would have started fire maneuver. I don't know, but never got to that point. When you arrived on scene, what was your first impression? It was, uh, again, the the troops were were kind of up. And so I kind of, I thought the same thing they did, that it was all over. Um, I I pretty much grasped what had happened. I could see from the the damage and the, you know, the nature of the the damage to the vehicles and stuff. Uh, I think they had a couple of wounded, light wounds. Nobody nobody serious, nothing life-threatening, fortunately. Um, And I think they were just... They, they had somewhat secured the scene because the girls left. So I think they were just getting on with the logistics of how they're going to fix their trucks, how they're going to get moving and get out of there. And that's, I think, what I observed at that point. Who would have been in charge of the Salvadoran convoy? Was it a lieutenant? Was it a sergeant? Or was it, you know, one of these gaggle of conscripts? 
Yeah, I think it was it was all conscripts, but there was a lieutenant who was part of the convoy. That would I think that was very typical to have somebody like that in charge of the convoy. So he was uh, unhurt, you know, giving orders, trying to get you know the again get on with the business of I think fixing the trucks and looking at the damage and deciding what was going to happen next. Yeah. Once you arrive on scene with your bodyguard, did you interact with the soldiers or did you go right to the lieutenant? Uh, coming up from the rear of the convoy, he was more towards the front. So I, I was starting up, uh, and when myself and the, the bodyguard were both kind of, we would, we were talking to the troops and, uh, nothing specific, but more like, you know, how you doing? How's it going? Uh, everybody okay? Uh, and, you know, they were chattering a little bit, you know, they were pointing out where, where things had come from, where the shooting was from and kind of a little bit about what happened, but we were kind of walking. We wanted to get up to the lieutenant and let him know we were there too and just see what he thought of things. Did you wind up reaching him? No, no. When the, uh, when the firing restarted, I would say we were maybe halfway up into the, and the trucks were spread out a little bit. So maybe halfway in and the, you know, then here, here comes the fire again, machine guns, I think probably two machine guns and a couple of rifles. Uh, so basically at that point, everybody, the, the way the terrain was to the right of the vehicles was, was a, uh, not a cliff. It wasn't that steep, but the ground went away to the right. And so we could get down behind there and be mostly undercover. So most everybody, some stayed behind the vehicles. Some went down in the, in this area, in this ditch down below. And that's where myself and the bodyguard went. So we just, we went down there. And then at that point, just kind of, we, we were watching, you know, or maybe our heads up a little bit more than they, they should have been, but trying to again, get an appreciation for what was going on. And it, it wouldn't have been, expected to have an actual assault happen again just because of the size of the forces that the guerrillas typically operated in so we we i sort of thought immediately that uh this is more of the same they're just restarting but i i wasn't suspecting an attack per se or anything else i just thought they were going to keep firing us up and then you know our guys maybe would would go after them and decide to go up and really chase them off but they they started firing back and they, you know the the convoy opened up with all its stuff i think probably a couple of machine guns and all the troops maybe a total of I don't know, maybe 20, 25 troops uh, and just peppered where the enemy was shooting from. And it went back and forth for, wow, you know, time changes when you're in that kind of a situation. But let's say maybe five to 10 minutes of more more fire. And then it stopped again. And it never restarted after that. You've mentioned the command and control issues in the Salvadoran army previously. When the fire took back up and you wound up down in that ditch, did the Salvadorans look to you? Did you provide guidance to them or was it... They were on autopilot because they'd been ambushed so many times before. I think they were all focused on, they, they knew where they had to return fire to, and they all kind of did that instinctively. I was interested in, in what the lieutenant was doing and if there was, if there was any guidance, any command, and I couldn't see him and I didn't really see any kind of leadership per se. It was just returning fire, just instinctive returning fire at that point. After those four or five minutes, what went through, what went up and down the line to kind of tell everybody that the fight was over? Yeah, I think it started at the front. I think, you know, once things calmed down, I think I, yeah, I think I did. I saw, I think I saw the lieutenant be the one that, that kind of got up and started moving again and started telling his troops closest to him to do the same. They did, what did they do? They did something though to not have it happen again. I think th I think I, I noticed, and maybe he would have had it to start with, and I just didn't see it, but I think he deliberately put some security out to keep a more deliberate eye on the place where the fire had come from. So he kind of pushed 
pushed a couple of troops or a couple of groups of troops a little bit forward of where the trucks were and like gave them a deliberate mission to keep your eyes open. You see anything, fire it up. And then again, we're going to get back to the trucks and dealing with them. I think that was what was going on. The trucks are down. Security's been pushed out. How much longer did you wind up staying in the kill zone while they repaired and prepared to you know, remount the vehicles? We were, at the time, I was traveling to one of the other brigades uh, where I was going for, I think, a couple of days to go stay with them and just do stuff with them. So, And, and there are very few side roads available or ones. So I, I don't think I had any options other than turning around and going back. And I, I so I sort of was mulling around. Do I try to push by? I, you could physically get by the trucks. Uh, just the question of whether you want to go into the kill zone or not. Um, so I waited. I don't know how long I waited. I would I would guess maybe 15 minutes, half an hour to watch what was going on, you know, keep an eye on the, the hills and see what the guerrillas were doing, kind of get an appreciation for what the Army guys were doing. Um, and then I just decided to, to go for it, you know, that we wanted to get by them so we could get on with what we were doing, and we did, basically. Got back to our vehicle, kind of uh, pushed by the trucks and kept going. As a Special Forces officer, you'd had previous experience doing Special Force assistance missions. How was your preparation for El Salvador different than those, or was it pretty much the same? The uh, the preparation pipeline for the mill group was was uh, fairly uh, I'll say rigid. Yeah, uh, they there were the the organization at Fort Bragg that managed security assistance is called SATMO is the acronym Security Assistance Training Management Office I think. So I went there to Bragg and they had a very deliberate training program orientation program. I uh, went through some classes. Uh, trying to think what, what are some of the things like combat driving was part of it, uh, you know, threat recognition. And they, they, had a, they had a line. I was there for a couple of weeks, I think, at Bragg and went through those classes, which was, again, was very deliberate. And then, like I said, I went through the language brush up in Guatemala for a while. So, yeah, there was a – it was more – it wasn't so much being an advisor. It was more the technical aspects of being in a hostile territory. Like I say, the driving training. I think I probably, they probably took us out and had to shoot some because they weren't sure what people's most recent experience was with firearms. So I, did, I think we did go out and qualify, you know, pistols and the, and the um, car 15, which I think was our preferred rifle that we had. Um, You'd done previous deployments with special forces, going out, advising, training, cooperative missions. This was to a war zone. What went through your head when the orders came and you're going through this training pipeline and then when you landed on, in country? Yeah, I was, I was thrilled. Professionally, uh, you know, it was the game in town. Of course, this was, like, as I said, the first Gulf War. Well, it kind of came and went while I was getting ready to go to El Salvador because uh, that one was, was pretty quick. Uh, but Salvador had been going on for a while and it was the real thing. And um, I had always been interested in, in mill groups and in the advisory mission and had bordered on it in my other Central American deployments. And I knew a lot of guys who had been there. So I thought, yeah, I, I thought it was a, a very interesting. I didn't really have high expectations. I understood how challenging the advisory mission is. And from working with Central American armed forces, mostly the Hondurans, you know, I recognized some of the limitations. Again, the, the types of, of troops that you've got, the conscript army, 
I think I had a pretty good background. Just And that's why they picked mostly seventh group people to go to the mill group because they already had the ro- rotations and the experience. We did an episode of The Spear with another special forces officer, Todd Angsman, who talked about advising in Mali and planning to have an E&E plan. Did you have one for your camp in Santa Ana? The uh, part of normal special forces planning for missions is an E&E plan. That's that's part of the, the training. So for any kind of a mission, you, you have something like that. So yeah, definitely. Um, we were, we were at, uh, and Santa Ana was maybe... 30 miles from the Guatemalan border. But again, the the threat we thought in our zone was not enormous. There weren't large forces. Actually, the the compound, the quartel where I lived, had gotten overrun, I think, the mid-'80s. They actually had a, an insider, a captain, who turned and and facilitated a blowing out one of the walls. And there were a lot of people who got killed in that attack and stuff. So, But that was past days in that particular zone. So we mostly expected the worst case is going to be mortar attacks, the, the Tempa Squinlays, which is that, that uh, gas container that I mentioned that they could sometimes lob into compounds, those kind of things. And even... Even an attack on the road, and I, when we had teams there training, we would tell them, you know, you want to have a good plan, you want to be able to respond, but ultimately the Army's going to get there. Um, if you can just stay alive and fight, maybe run, but come back to the road, basically, is the plan, because the Army's going to get there eventually, and you'll be able to make contact with the Army. So we didn't, we didn't really think about, I mean, we knew where Guatemala was, we, you know, we could hump, hump to the west. You know, for twenty, but I don't. I couldn't have foreseen a circumstance where we had had to do that. How long was your tour? Uh, I was there fifteen months. I got. A, I was there. Um, I got extended because I got picked up for residence CGSC. I'd already done it correspondence. Again, that was one of the requirements. I'd, I'd kind of done that because at the time we had a pre-course called CAS Cubed, which is a staff course. But if you did it at Leavenworth in person, and everybody had to do it back then, you got credit for like two out of the six modules of CGSC. And so as I was deploying in mostly seventh group, I said, eh, let me get the correspondence stuff. So I, I had knocked it all out. And then I had thoughts of maybe trying to go to a foreign CGSC. So anyway, I had, I had done it, but then I got picked up for the resident course. And just because of the timing of going to Leavenworth, I had extra time on my hands. And so I kind of hung on a little bit longer, uh, to the tour that would have been a 12 month tour normally. Greg, thanks for being on the spear today. We don't often get some of these forgotten wars. Uh, on the show and these forgotten perspectives. So it's a it's an honor to have you here again. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.